I wanted to take this moment to tell you about a program I am in that helps women navigate the journey of realizing their lesbians while in relationships with men. It's a 12-week support program called Coming Out on the Other Side. It is hosted by one of my early podcast guests, Emily Better. Some of the topics include the three stages of coming out later in life, understanding why you didn't figure this out sooner, and why this is so hard. You will go from being scared, confused, lacking confidence, hiding your true self, and feeling alone, guilty, and misunderstood, to overcoming fears, understanding and embracing who you are, being confident in yourself and your decisions, and ultimately being able to come out and live as your authentic self if and when you're ready. Learn more by going to thelatelifelesbian.com. Welcome to the Lesbian Honest Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah St. John. I'm super excited about my guest today. She walked away from her successful Christian music career in 2002 and subsequently came out as lesbian. After a seven-year hiatus, she returned in 2010 with a renewed passion for music. And in 2012, she founded the nonprofit organization Inside Out Faith. And then in 2014, released a book about her story entitled Facing the Music. Welcome to the show, Jennifer Knapp. Hey there. I am so excited to have you. You know, you came out, or I guess I should clarify what I mean. You came onto the scene, the Christian music scene, not came out, in 1998 <laughs> and was a huge fan. And I, one of my earliest memories, I think, was you played Celebrate Freedom in Dallas. And okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like a big Christian concert festival around the 4th of July. But it started like raining and lightning and all the stuff. And so you had to, I think you sang maybe one song and then they had to get you off the stage and you never got to come back on because it set the schedule so far back. But that was like years ago. So who knows if you remember that. But when you came out, so that was, was that 2003? 2010. I didn't come out until, gay come out until 2010. I quit my music career in, in 2002 and just kind of didn't really know who the hell I was and didn't really figure out I was going to get myself sorted out while I was in the public eye. I just needed a break from Christianity, from being an artist. One of the things I kind of say, I say is like all during my time in Christian music, I'd been celibate for 10 years and holding everybody at bay. Like I didn't really have any friends or any relationships and I just didn't know who I was in order to build those relationships. The long story short is after about seven years, I met my partner and developed a relationship with my partner. And then when I started to come back and do music in 2010, it was definitely a requirement at that point to come out. It felt like a requirement to me, particularly with people anticipating my return and especially from Christian music. I wasn't living in the closet or anything. All my family knew and my day-to-day life when I wasn't in the public eye because I didn't have a career. Like I was just me and hanging out and my partner and I had been together for several years. And But when I started to come back and consider doing music again, again, like I was saying, all the Christians were pretty excited that I was going to be doing music again. And not only was I not anticipating coming back and doing any faith-based music, which I thought was going to re- be a really important piece of information, I also had the reality is that there were, I knew that there were going to be, especially at the time, I knew there were going to be a lot of Christians that would not be particularly fond of showing up to a show and finding out that I was gay. I didn't want to live in the closet. I, th- I think in particular for my LGBTQ community, I mean, and especially in and around faith, 
for me, it was really important to not even have a doubt. Everyone around me knew it was very clearly visible in my daily life. So I didn't want there to be any questions. So obviously I came out. I put that in air quotes because it's kind of weird to have to put out a press release about your sexual orientation, but that's kind of what was required. So officially I wasn't out until 2010, but in real life, you know, in my everyday life, my partner and I have been together for over 20 years. I don't remember when the exact day was or anything like that, because it's not like you fall in love and you do a press release necessarily, because <laughs> you don't really know on that day or in that month, the story kind of evolves from there. But yeah, for the most part, I was well into my late 20s before I had any kind of time or recognition to be able to consider my sexual orientation. But by the time that became a press release, that was 2010. So it's been a while. Okay. Yeah, I'm getting the years mixed up. But I remember when you came out, I just, it's so weird, like the little details that you remember. I distinctly remember, I think I was in a Best Buy and I got the notification on my phone. So yeah, it would have had to have been not 2003 because smartphones weren't out yet. So anyway, yeah, I was scrolling my phone, saw the, I guess it was the press release or an article about it or something. And I remember feeling this sense of, and see, this would have been what, 13 years ago. I suppose there could have been some suspicions about myself, but it wasn't really prominent at that time. But I remember when I saw that feeling a sense of like, I don't know if peace is the word. Excitement, maybe like, oh, I didn't connect the dots, though, that why am I so excited about the fact that this Christian singer just came out? But now it all makes sense. And I remember I was telling I told my family about it right away. Of course, their reaction was not great, but I was excited about it. So then when you left in 2002, was yeah. that because at that point you knew you were gay and it was difficult to juggle that? No, I mean, one of the things that I would say is that I had actually been intending to quit for the previous, the entire previous year. Mm -hmm. So in as far as my professional commitments were concerned, I officially stopped booking new shows in like 2001. It took me an entire year to clear off my calendar. That whole year through the course of like late 2001 and through all of 2002, I was telling people, I'm done. This is the last time you'll see me in the city. Nobody believed me. <laughs> But most of the reasons why is because I was having some, first off, I was 27 years old. I was starting to get a sense of my own adult theological opinions set up. I was really frustrated within the industry. I was really very, very unhappy by being presented as this virtuous role model for all Christian women. It was probably more along the lines of just a lot of my discontent for the role that women often have to play in conservative evangelical environments. Nice, quiet, get married, have kids. And all I knew is that I had been like, like I said, I tell people like I'd been celibate for like 10 years. I didn't have any meaningful relationships because I was terrified of all of them because of the high leverage of sexuality in general. Nothing kills your career in CCM faster than some kind of sexual misconduct or sex, just period. If you've had it, like, <laughs> you know, you, you, you've seen another person and another person seen you naked, all bets are off. And so a lot of my discontent was in and around this theological and feminist issues that I had inside of the industry. And at the time, I think it's really important to point out that the true love weights movement was on and sexual purity was really starting to become a heavy, heavy, very clear, extremely overt marketing campaign targeted to women. And just about every 
thing that I was asked to do was to be a representative inside of that, even informally. It just grossed me out. I was really angry about it. And as my theology was evolving, I was finding that the conversations that I wanted to have on stage were just completely pushing and rebel, like they were completely considered rebellious at the time. If I was to say what I was really experiencing and really wanted to talk about, really wanted to write about and really wanted to communicate with my audience about every time that I even minorly stepped out of line, it was just this incredibly stressful career threatening kind of experience. So that's all to say is that that environment was so felt so strict to me that I, for years, had not really spent cultivating a sense of my own self, like really fully living out every single day as me. Every day was like trying to kind of put myself into this situation of not offending anyone and trying to be representative of what the expectations of, were to me to represent. But I, as I started to kind of develop what I wanted to represent, that became really frustrating and very stressful kind of thing. So. I didn't really know. I mean, I think when I look back, I kind of go, oh, it makes sense to me. I never really understood why people kept asking me, you know, when are you going to get married and have babies and retire and be a pastor's wife? And I was just like, I don't even know how to answer that question because I, I had to kind of just shut my entire self down. I didn't really have any needs or wants or desires when it came to my own happiness or my own joy or any relationships. So it wasn't until after I'd retired and made that decision to quit that, that I then started to be able to focus like, wow, I'm really lonely. I'm really disconnected from people. I'm going to cultivate these relationships that I have with other people that I've been, frankly, terrified of cultivating because the, the funny thing was, was like all the years that I was in conservative evangelical environments. If I had a relationship with a man, everybody would go, oh, that relationship's too close. Are you guys having sex? And that'll ruin your life. And if I had a relationship with a woman, it would be the same thing. And I'd be like, okay. So I just shut the whole thing down. And it wasn't until I quit that I felt like that opened it up. So what I'm aware of is that there are Christians who know, there are Christian artists who have grown up inside of the industry and have known their sexual orientation and really work to kind of stuff that thing inside, kind of to stave off the impending doom of whatever is honest to them. I didn't really have that experience. That's just the honest story. But the other side of it is I think it's, and with that previous story in mind, I always get a little bit nervous because I think it's really important in terms of my own integrity to be able to say, listen, like, had I know the second that I knew, I'm not very good at keeping secrets. I just sucked at it. Had I really known and had that been something that I embraced, then I'm pretty confident that that's something that I would have dealt with. It's just kind of my MO. And it's been one of the points where there have been certain people throughout my career who have claimed that they knew and I'd confess to them during those times. It's total BS. I mean, I don't know how anyone could have known that before I really knew that. And I think that the weird thing is that kind of only really makes sense to LGBTQ plus people. I, I think... Maybe it's part of when you grow up, I think I'm no different. I think I just assumed I was heterosexual until I just finally just sat down and go, why does none of the rest of this stuff make sense? Why am I not like the rest of the majority of people around me? But I think that often makes sense because when we're, at least it seems to make sense when I talk to other LGBTQ plus people that you kind of just know when you know, but it, it doesn't really matter what everybody else says or even if you're like clearly gay and everybody else knows it before you do. It doesn't really matter until you know that. 
it's not really relevant even at that point until it becomes relevant with the relationships of the people that you're building intimate relationships with. So that was always the other interesting thing too, is it's like, I just thought of myself as a person attracted to my partner. And then all of a sudden I get this label of queer LGBTQ and all of those I'm fine with. But it's funny that the rest of the world is defining me by the gender of the partner I've chosen. Not, nothing about me in particular, but it's strangely in relationship to whoever I've found myself partnered with. So it's always an interesting story to me, but I think in the long term, I really, the one thing I do know for sure is I don't think I would have ever really been able to really nurture and care for and look after my own mental health and well-being through that process in the public eye. Like I really needed a private, not secret, but private around people who cared for me, were nurturing me, were going to be sources of wisdom without the extraneous social media, a thousand strangers yelling at you a day and telling you how disappointing you are. I needed to go to a nurturing environment and be around my friends and family and have no expectations of anything except for just growing into my full self. So I was really fortunate to be able to have that opportunity and that time to do that. I wanted just a normal life to be able to do that in and not necessarily have to do that while I was on stage. I was grateful for that opportunity to be able to have it happen that way. So how did you decide to get back into music? It's a little bit of an evolution. For the first part of the seven years that I was out of the industry and quit, I mean, I, I really went through a process of mourning. I really genuinely thought that, and I think I somewhat believed what a lot of people told me, that if I'd left the Christian music industry, particularly at the level of success that I'd, I guess that I'd had, I, I didn't really consider myself too successful in the industry at the time. I, I really felt like I left a failure. And I, I grieved the loss of something that I, I knew I wouldn't be able to go back to. I just kind of felt really used up and too angry about my experience, I think, to feel like that it was anything that I'd ever be able to healthfully go back into. It took three or four years, really, of just completely mourning the loss of something that had been a part of my life. And by that, I mean music. I mean, I'd been doing music as long as I could remember. I'd been living the dream of something that I, I anticipated doing the rest of my life. And I'd made a decision that I thought was I was never going to be able to really go do that again. After I got through that mourning process, and I think I just started to relax a little bit. And again, this took several years. Then I started to kind of practice picking up my guitars and stuff and trying to play and it still probably took me another couple of years after that to pick up those guitars and not have flashbacks and not feel like when I picked up the guitar, I was disappointing this even by this time I know I'm gay. By this pot time, I don't really have any vision of saying anything else to the Christian world in that space. So I'm picking up my guitar and I don't know why, but slowly but surely it just kind of I just started writing songs again, just kind of reminding myself of just write where you're at. You know, if I was pissed, I wrote about being pissed. It wasn't until maybe I had maybe like half a dozen songs or something and my friends were noticing. <laughs> They're like, you consider maybe sharing these with people. And so that took another year or so. But, you know, it was a weird thing. It was a, a slow evolution, just step by step. And I had to do that very slowly because I didn't anticipate that even if I recorded another record again, that people would even listen to it. So even that in the release that I had in 2010, I still released that record with an idea of going, well, I don't know if this is going to go anywhere. 
that I've been really fortunate. I just keep taking one day at a time. Seriously, even today with every show that I do, I'm really grateful that people come. And what I will tell any budding artist or any musician is just like, hey, just play. Just say yes to the things that are in front of you and then enjoy your moment. There's no obligation to kind of be a star or create an empire or anything like that. And I think particularly that was for me, part of the the agreement that I made, I think supposedly to the divine other to say, listen, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And the environment's got to be hospitable to me and I'll be hospitable to it. And it's worked out well so far. So what was that like when you did officially come out with the press release and all that? I mean, all I really remember is that didn't Christian bookstores like pull your music or something? Or am I not remembering that correctly? Yeah. There wasn't much to pull because, I mean, I hadn't performed. And so like it was by that time, it had been eight years since I'd had any new product to sell in Christian music bookstores. But for certain, there were chains like Lifeway got into the media and they were very particular about saying they weren't going to you know stock my product anymore, which was interesting because you could still go. You wouldn't necessarily see it, but you could actually I think even to this day, you can probably still order it online from them. So. It's kind of weird, but they made a very, and I think family Christian bookstores maybe got into the fray or whatever. But yeah, I mean, there were a lot of retailers that were very clear that they didn't really appreciate it. I think what's important to note about that is not necessarily that that really affected me financially in any way because I wasn't really selling. I was lucky I might be selling 100 records a year off of all the stores across the country. So what I think what was frustrating for me was this continual signaling that these kinds of corporate gatekeepers for Christian culture do that signals to other gay artists that are out there, maybe perhaps still, you know, contemplating writing music about their faith or artists that are in the Christian music industry or even people who are working behind the scenes. It's a huge signal. It says, we're not going to support you. You're going to lose your job. We don't care how wonderful of a perspective you have in your faith experience, we're not going to give you the opportunity to share that with us. And so, you know, that signal was more, I think, was probably more threatening in my compassion for other LGBTQ people who are, quote unquote, behind me. I say that in complete air quotes. Current people who actually really do need those distributors and those gatekeepers in order to speak to the people that they're trying to reach. I knew that I wasn't going to have that anyway. So it it was kind of a moot point for me personally, but that's the real thing. And I, I think that the joy of that really was being able to point that out to say, listen, I'm not worried about what negativity you want to spread to my way because it's kind of weird. It doesn't, it didn't, weirdly, it didn't reach me, right? Like I knew they were going to be disappointed. You could have written the script about all the things that were going to go bad all like the bad press and all the people who were saying they're, they're disappointed you and this is bad theology and you're a sinner and you've given yourself over. All of those things were right on script. And that's not fun. It doesn't feel good, even if you don't believe it. But the other side of it, and this is the thing I will asterisk and put in bold print and follow by exclamation point. The things that I did not know were how much positivity I was going to receive after coming out, how much support, how important that was for the other queer folk to see somebody else go through something that they had to go through as well. 
to be able to do that with honor at the end of the day, like, yes, part of it was a decision that I, I knew I had made for myself and my own personal and professional integrity. But the thing that I didn't really know before I pushed that button was how important that was going to be to so many other people to see somebody else share in the experience of that, to show that it could be a positive experience to be able to talk and show these amazing positive voices are out there. We've been silenced for long enough at that point that for me to kind of come out and not engage in a fight, but come out and celebrate who I was, get on with my life, take on a couple fights in public and not cry and just push back and go, no, you don't get to do that here. You don't get to do that on my head. You don't get to take my joy away from me. You don't get to take that away from other people. I think that that was one of the things that I think made it so incredibly meaningful to me because I wasn't just fighting for myself. I was fighting for so many other people that I knew and faces of people and names of people that were coming to my shows going, do this for me. Not we weren't doing it for ourselves already, but there was some part of it that didn't feel like it was something that I was just doing utterly for myself. So kind of a positive way I could dissociate a little bit from the risks it felt like I was taking for myself and kind of being a big sister, a mama bear, just starting to let that inner anger that was my own be a protective, caring, compassionate voice of strength for other people. And that was a real honor. And to this day is is probably what gets me motivated to talk about this stuff more than anything else, because I'm fine. I haven't really struggled too much internally with my own experience i think in part because i've had a lot of nurturing quiet time to kind of get to know who i am and myself that by the time i came to the public space i was ready and knowing who i was enough that i didn't feel like i had to defend it or worry about it and i'd already been through the grieving process of losing my career so i really kind of had nothing to lose like it was either going to pan out or it wasn't and i was in a good mental space about that and i, I think I'll wrap it up by saying this. I think one of the things in our world is all the media and social, you know, all the conversations we can have about, you know, coming out being such a big banner moment in our lives. I, th I think sometimes we forget health. I think that concept sometimes puts a little pressure on us all, no matter where we live in the world. I think that it's like just this one moment in time that's got to be this massive paradigm shift for you as the individual and for everyone else around you. And it, it's not necessarily that way. It's important to know who you are. And that's what I'll be an advocate of for everybody and their mental health, no matter who you are and what you're going through to the challenges for us to get to know who we are. And then as we meet people, they gradually come to know us and get to know the fullness of who we are as well. So it's not always, you know, these big grandiose moments and also when you know it. So there's, I, I think there's not necessarily, I think there is a difference. I think we know, you know, when you have that information and you still don't let people know, that's kind of, to me, more of what the closet is like. But if you don't know and you aren't ready to fully disclose some headline or bullet point or some self-biography that makes some proclamation, sometimes it's just a journey. And I am highly encouraging people to, you know, take their time and know the people that are going to nurture you and be safe for you. It's not a requirement necessarily to feel like there has to be some massive paradigm shift on any given one day. It takes time. And it's and the people who love you and care about you will, generally speaking, those people who truly love you and care about you are going to be with you on that journey, no matter how long it takes and no matter that evolution of yourself to get to know who you are. And they want to get to know you as well.
Yeah, I think that's really good. I mean, in your situation and like Vicky Beeching, is that your Beeching? Yeah. Both of y'all had to come out publicly with the press release and all that stuff. But for the average person, it's almost like a you're having to re-come out to new people all the time. <laughs> friends, family, coworker, whoever it might be. And it's not just this one day event. I mean, even for you, I'm sure. Before that, well, there are people even... who still don't know. Like I've oh. had people recently, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but I feel like I've I've had some people come up to shows recently. They didn't get the memo, and I was like, <laughs> "Oh, this is so weird." Well, I was actually playing a show a couple days ago, and it was a an unusual concert for me because, like, it was like a I would say ninety percent of the people there didn't know who I was. It was mm -hmm. great. And it's so rare for me to like not do that. Anyways, like a kind of like a typical showing up at a pub where at a bar where everybody else comes to the venue, but they don't really care who's playing. And I was I was the artist for that day. And a lot of people didn't know who I was. And I was trying to somewhat be careful to not like overwhelm them with my whole story, but just kind of just play some music and be comfortable. And then I realized I'd said a couple of things like, oh, they were probably piecing that together that when I was talking about my partner that I wasn't necessarily talking about a male. And there are a couple of people that I, I just noticed kind of shifted and then were like, oh, 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 you know, it was kind of funny. It was like to just kind of watch that happen, considering that, you know, most of the time I just live my life and don't necessarily walk into every room thinking I'm a lesbian or <laughs> probably any more than I ever did when I walked into a room and go, oh, I'm a Christian. Like I I've never really been deeply invested in those labels. I I've been, I've worked my part of my private life and in my spiritual work, I've really tried to pay more attention to who I want to be as a person and how I want to grow as a person rather than picking out the identity that I want to live into. Does that make sense? Like, I want to get to know who I am and how I want to be and then pick the discipline that I want to be able to arrive at that place. I'm not interested in saying, hey, I would like to be this, you know, pick it first and then try to live into it. I've kind of already done that and had that experience with Christianity. And even when I say that, when I talk about discipline, I mean, I, I, I think very much about who I want to be and Christianity has certainly been one of the most significant disciplines that I've had in shaping the kind of character that I want to have and the, the kind of integrity and in the way that I want to operate in the world. I'm not interested necessarily in inventing it on my own. I think there's good sources of wisdom out there and I get a lot from that, but I also get a lot from other people. And but yeah, I think it's more important to figure out who am I at my best? When am I most fruitful and fulfilled, not just within my own person, but when I understand and I nurture that, my thought is that I will then be better equipped to be healthy and helpful and fruitful to others when I come in contact with that. If you want to go to a scripture, it's like, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and spirit, and your neighbor as yourself. Well, I look at that. And I've developed my own philosophy, like, I guess, like my own MO or philosophy or way of being. It's just like, well, I don't know how to love my neighbor because for a long time I didn't love myself. I just didn't know how to love others because I honestly didn't know who the hell I was and how to be kind or generous or understand anything about that. And to be honest, I didn't know how to love God either. To me, it was like a two 
I, I would describe my early years of getting into Christianity or for lack of a better word, my discipleship. It's like, I didn't know how to love God, but I was trying to do two things. I was trying to go, oh, I wanted, I wanted to be a well-rounded, healthy, whole, good person, whatever that meant. And then I also took seriously and this mystery of God, but I didn't even, I couldn't even understand that God could possibly love me because I didn't see any reason to love me. So those two things were two things that I was trying to do at the same time. Like, why does God, you know, who am I that God would be mindful of me, right? I kind of was answering that question and and trying to get to know, like, why would God want to know me? And if you want to get to know that question, in part, opens the door to asking who is God or what is God and opening that mystery up too. So who am I and who is God were two things that were really important in my life. And as I did that, it might seem that it's a very selfish, self-centered thing, but I knew that I all the things that we talk about in Christianity was, you know, like to be righteous and, and be kind and generous and act like Jesus towards others. That made no sense to me really because it didn't, to me, there was something more than just acting nice but actually genuinely looking at somebody else and wanting to love them and knowing that I didn't really know too much about that. And I could follow the script for that for a while. It didn't really kind of take hold or get any purchase with me until I started to feel the, the sense of gratitude, what, what it meant to be graceful to myself, to forgive my, myself of not being perfect, to encourage myself to be the best version of myself. That when I went to sleep at night, I, I felt at peace with who I was as a human being. And I felt at peace. The next stage was wanting to go not just do that for myself, but go to bed at night being at peace with the interactions I'd had with other people. And to wake up the next morning being excited about my opportunities. And the next was waking up in the morning and being excited about my opportunities to interact and to love other people. For me, that started at a very personal space and taking my own personal responsibility. And then once I understood that, then I was able to love others. And then that made sense to me through this sense of universal love. So so what was that reconciliation process like for you? I think it's a little different for everybody. But were you digging deep into the scriptures and the exegesis and all that kind of stuff? Or what was your process like? In terms of being gay, I mean, I was aware of what's famously referred to as the clobber verses. And I mean, I'd been around that environment and admonished plenty of times growing up for just appearing gay and being figure wagged at and things like that. And I was just like, okay. I knew culturally and I knew that amongst my peers that that, I knew my peers didn't accept that. I've read the Bible a lot. Now I have a, a master's in theology. I find the the Bible to be a very useful source of wisdom. I, I really don't hate that book, despite what some people would say about it. But I think in what I was gathering, especially the first four or five years of just reading the Bible is what I got. And again, this goes back to the process of just learning to see what God saw in me. And in none of that did I ever feel a sense of anything about even when it came to sex, and I'd had plenty of sexual partners, all straight, <laughs> all opposite sex partners in my young years. What concerned me wasn't necessarily that I'd had, say, sex outside of marriage. What concerned me is the way that I treated my body as if it was something to cheaply give away. And what also concerned me is that I didn't think one single second about what that interaction was like for the other person. I didn't care at all. And, and to me, that ethic, that ethic alone was probably more of is 
and this is an example of, I'm trying to answer the question and what was the, the critique or how did I reconcile that? What I'd already had these experiences that I'm going, oh, it's not necessarily that I'd had sex to me. That was the defining problem. The problem was that I didn't understand the value of how to care for myself and how to care for others with this incredibly, incredibly intimate act. I was utterly reckless with that. And that gave me grief. And they, I had know that had to grieve other people. And so that was more, that's kind of more the way I thought about that in general, long before I got to reconciling and any kind of reconciliation with my own sexual orientation. That's one point. But the other point was that I kind of didn't care. I, <laughs> it's a weird thing. What it says on a piece of paper and what somebody wrote down, what somebody's opinion was, didn't really matter to me until I'd lived that experience. And what I, I knew somewhere in there is I was disconnected from people and that if, if that turned out to be true, if this, and when I be, began to, to go, okay, it's time for me to look at my own sexual orientation. I think I might be attracted to the same sex. I was like, okay, well, I am disconnected and I am lonely and this seems like something that is right. And I am not content with thinking I'm a horrible, horrible human being that I'm destined for hell. So I opened the door to that and I wasn't necessarily like saying, hey, I'm going to risk everything to get in trouble and see if this pans out that it's really bad. No, it was quite the opposite. Like I knew who I was and I knew I wasn't trying to, my intention or my ambition wasn't to harm myself or to harm others. My ambition was to be loved, make myself available to be loved by others, make myself available, give myself permission to love others. And then like, if God didn't like the way that I was doing that, if you don't like me the way that I am, I kind of just said, you reconcile it because I don't know how to do it. You either like me for me or you don't. And I'm doing my best over here. And you either believe me that I genuinely care. I put a great deal of faith into that. And I kind of stopped worrying about what other humans said. And I don't know that I was really afraid of God either, because I somewhat had a, a little bit of faith that God didn't want to destroy me. And if God did want to destroy me because I didn't get everything right, then that's not a God I want to follow. It, it just wasn't. So the long story short for me, it was just like I actually had a sneaking suspicion that if God indeed is the creator of all that is of all that we see, like even in an earthly analogy, any parent that doesn't genuinely want to love and protect their own creation to me is no parent at all. At the, the core of the people that we love, that we want to be around and we want to help them through the good times and the bad times. And it's not just throwing them away or just dis discarding them or even destroying them or annihilating them when they don't get it right. So I figured through all of this that I would, you know, haphazardly at worst, trip into something and I would find out the truth and I was okay to go through that journey. And I, I just refused to think that God was going to annihilate me just because it was a peaceful experience for me. I didn't really get, you know, I think we can go and I think we can go back. And there are a lot of people and a lot of books that have been written about what the Bible does and doesn't say about homosexuality. And I kind of roll my eyes when I say that the Bible says a lot about a lot of things, but so do we. It depends on the translation. It depends on who's doing the translating. It depends on who's doing interpreting. At the end of the day, I think what proves itself out and the longer story of the Bible is that God genuinely wants to connect with us, that God genuinely invites us to participate and to see something of God's world. 
And that above all, it, the way that you will see that is by honoring and loving and being kind to one another and, and the compassion that, and opportunities that we have to see that, to treat ourselves and creation as if it's good. And when we're not, that's how we know things are a little bit off balance or a lot off balance. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many books that kind of break down the Bible verses and stuff like that. But even putting that aside, God created love. And he created man. He didn't want man to be alone. The animals weren't good enough. You needed another human connection, someone to talk with and connect with on whatever levels. And I feel like so many people who are anti-gay or whatever, they're so focused on the sex part of it. It's like they can't even process that two people of the same gender could love each other. They're just focused on the sex aspect. It's like, well... Is your straight relationship just about sex? And I think, you know, the greatest commandment is love and love is all throughout the Bible. And to me, it's just from a logical and practical perspective, how could love between two consenting adults ever, why is that a problem for people? You know what I mean? It's always interesting to me. One, because one, I think a lot of the LGBTQ people, particularly in reference to the Bible, one of the things you'll hear is traditional marriage, and I put that in air quotes. Basically, the idea that we have a piece of paper, we go through a ritual that says that a heterosexual couple will get married. But my issue with that, that idea to think that something magical happens the second that we get married that protects us ethically and morally in our intimate relationships with one another, and that's just simply not true. You can still violate that intimacy and that physical contact with marriage. There's still rape inside of marriage. There still has to be consent. There still has to be an ethical and moral conduct when it comes to some of the most vulnerable act that we can probably do and participate with another human being. It's not necessarily what our biological makeup is. It's how we touch one another that is the real conversation. And a piece of paper doesn't magically do that. Now, a covenant, I have no problem with the covenant, but that covenant is a, a clear conversation between two people that says, I am going to honor you and respect you. I am going to care for you. This is a conversation. My partner and I weren't married until well into our relationship, but don't think for half a and it wasn't available to us like from a legal standpoint, but I would do not think that we weren't accountable to one another, that we hadn't been clear, that we didn't have witnesses about us, like our families and our friends who were, in a sense, a community of accountability that said, we let know what the boundaries of our relationship were, that the expectations between us were to partner in monogamy. The, the piece of paper doesn't magically do that. You have to commit to doing that in your mission, in your honor, and your covenant with those other people. These are the, the things that I think are sometimes often the things that we miss in Christianity where we think, oh, we'll just say this and you're violating this thing because you didn't do it. I'm like, no, you're violating because you didn't think about that covenant to begin with. And if you think that you can just go through the steps and avoid the problems Talk to a generation of people post true love waits. There are a lot of marriages now and the, the what's called the deconstruction movement. A lot of people who waited before they got married and they did all this stuff and now, you know, they've had their kids and now they're in their 30s and 40s and they actually are like marriages are falling apart because they don't know about intimacy. They don't know how to talk to one another. They don't. And it's not just straight people, but this vacuum and this void of what I'm saying inside of 
faith-based communities sometimes is we misunderstand what good and holy behavior is. And we think that doing a thing or ticking off a box or going through signing a piece of paper will actually prepare you to do those things healthily, happily, morally, ethically, without ever doing the work of studying, preparing, committing to, and making your daily commitment to that ethic and that morality. Those are two different things that none of those things can do unless you're willing to practice them. My complaint, particularly when it comes to LGBTQ issues, is there are, we are not, queer folk are not, we will find the same poor relationships as heteros. We're like, none of us are, whether you're gay or straight or otherwise, you're not going to be able to avoid the consequences of poor relationship and poor intimacy if you don't know how to develop a good ethic morality and compassion and love and empathy in those intimate relationships, period. And it, like you said, you know, at the end of the day, it has very little to do with whether our biological body parts touch one another. It has everything to do with our character, our heart and our motive and our, our conduct. Yeah. And, and another thing is the Bible says you'll know them by their fruit. Well, when people are preaching that if you love someone of the same gender, well, you just you can't do that. But then that's denying happiness, love, fulfillment, whatever. And I think that's why we're seeing so much suicide among the LGBTQ. The suicide rate, from what I last knew, is significantly higher than the rest of the population. And, and dr uh, substance abuse, you know, all these different things. And of course, some people will say, oh, well, they're killing themselves or they're using drugs or alcohol because that's how they're trying to cope with being gay. Well, no, it's them trying to cope with society and religion pushing on them that that's not natural for them or that it's unnatural and they have to avoid it and all this. And one of the things that makes me think about is I, I think sometimes this parallel that happens inside of faith-based environments that actually doesn't appreciate pleasure. And by mm -hmm. pleasure, I'm not necessarily just talking about sexual pleasure in, in that regard, but a general activity with which we participate in, which is, is feels good to us, brings us joy that we're motivated to do again and repeat because we want to go back to it because it, it feels good. We like it. There's been so much demonization in and around pleasure that we don't actually understand what is good. Like any kind of pleasure is kind of put in this category of, of hedonistic, just for the sake of doing it, just for the sake of self-gratification. There are so many things that we do, and that's just silly. I am motivated as a musician. It brings me pleasure. I like getting paid for my work, but I also like doing my work without getting paid for it. Like, But it helps me to do those hard days knowing that I get a reward for it. I get pleasure by doing hard things. I came out. I went through the gauntlet of running through. Strangely enough, that was not in you know, those first few years of coming out. And the hard parts of that where I took the slings and arrows, so to speak, it still gave me pleasure to do that. And I would do it all. Honestly, having gone through that, I would do it again. Pleasure isn't just about the shiny, happy, sunny days. But all I'm saying is that somewhere in that, we have to recognize that if we take pleasure away, then what we take away are the positive motivations that allow us to repeat an action again. To, if we're not able to say, yes, that brings me pleasure. Yes, that brings me joy. And I want that to be a good and fruitful thing. And for good and fruitful for yourself or for others, for that to bring you pleasure, that to bring you joy, those kinds of motivations are really good for us. 
if it's a bad experience, we don't tend to want to do that again. <laughs> we don't tend to want to go back and do things that aren't rewarding to us. We are, at the end of the day, very human. The carrot works a lot better than the stick. And going back to something, that gives you a pretty good indication of what might possibly bring you joy. But that conversation inside of LGBTQ stuff is like, oh, yeah, right? You're just giving over to the pleasures of the world. I'm like, you don't understand what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about just the gratification of my sexual pleasure for the sake of just my own gratification. I'm talking to you about deeply meaningful con connections that I'm having, not with just my intimate partner, but now that I know that I'm a lovable, that somebody can love me and love me back and treat me with safety and concern. And my joy of being able to do that with somebody else has opened up my ability to be honest and open to other people. Flowers don't grow in the most, many flowers don't grow in the dark. So to be in the closet and to be stifled, this is not a joyful experience and people are not ultimately inclined to stay there. But I think there is a real conversation that theologically, and again, this is kind of why I kind of started to fall out of conversations and not be popular back in the early 2000s going, well, I don't, let's talk about what it really means to be, yes, I can do all these things. Yeah, I can drink, not smoke, not cuss, not, 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 not. But I want to do, do, do. And I want to love people. I want to act kindly. I want the things that I do in this world to make not just a benefit for me, but a benefit fit for others. And how do I do that? And how do I do that? Well, will you please guide me instead of telling me everything that I can and I can't do because I'm worried about some kind of punishment as opposed to being excited about the reward of joy is more to my point. Yeah, exactly. It's almost become more about rules and making sure you follow the rules. I was watching something the other day. Oh, his name is Colton. I don't know his last name, but he was on The Bachelor and a football player. And anyway, it was some Netflix show called like Colton Coming Out or something. And there was something he said about how he used to view the cross as rules and regulations. And now he views it as grace, peace, love, all these fruits of the spirit basically so yeah i think that's just christianity i think so many people think of it as rules and regulations and i think maybe speaking to the reconciliation question i think part one of the things i will say is that if in any sense we like in christianity and this won't this will be like very familiar for most everybody even if you're not a christian jesus was sacrificed so that we would be saved that's the average way that most people think and define that but this idea that it's not just believing in Jesus and that, but that can, to me that like communicates, it's like, listen, we don't have to be afraid anymore. That God loves us. That God's willing to do some pretty extreme things. And whether you believe in the cross or not, there's something in that story that says God loves you enough to do some pretty extraordinary things to get you to understand that you don't have to be afraid. To me, what Jesus was saying is like, you don't have to be afraid of God's wrath and God's punishment. God loves you, period. And however you get to that, like struggle for that. I don't even think you have to be a Christian or even necessarily to believe in God. And this is one of the things I always say. I think you can be an atheist and I can say to you, you're going to hell and God doesn't love you. And you know exactly what I, the hostility that I intend. Spiritually, that may not bother you at all, but you know that I intend hostility when I say that. Rather than embracing this possibility, this very possibility that you may be a lovable person worthy of dignity worthy of love, worthy of a peaceable passing in your life. At the end of the day, part of that reconciliation for me was this light bulb going off in my head going, I don't have to be afraid anymore. To me, that is true liberation. 
not saying that I want to take advantage. It just says on my best day when I'm trying my hardest, I don't have to get it right anymore. But it doesn't mean that I don't want to have integrity or responsibility to my character. I do. It's not a free for all. If you're being an asshole, stop it. It is about hospitality to others, and we should strive to do that. But what I'm saying is even though we don't get those right, or even these notions that we might get in our head where we think we're doing something right, the idea is not that we should live in fear anymore. And I think that ultimately that's what the cross is trying to communicate to us is that there is hope to be had in your life. Stop living in desperation. Stop living out of fear. Because when we do that, and I think, which is what I love about the LGBTQ community participating in, we know that when we live in fear, we live in hiding, that we are hostile, not just to ourselves, but often it comes out in hostility towards others. And once you're free from that, once you come out of that and you're getting more comfortable in your own skin, the more generous you are to your own self and the more generous we tend to be. And like that is the joy that I love about this community is there hasn't, there's been more evidence to suggest that there's more pain and trauma and humiliation sitting in the closet and being afraid than there is coming out of the closet, getting to see the light of day, getting to connect with other human beings. That's incredibly fulfilling um, and healing and, and helpful to not just our own wholeness, but the dignity and wellness of others as well. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great way to close. Well, I appreciate your time. What are you up to these days? I know you're touring. Do you have another album in the works or? Oh, I love that question. As of right now, like I'm definitely touring a lot this fall. I'm actually, I've got a secret project in the works, but I'm not ready to announce it quite yet. But all the things that I'm doing, you can see at jennifernapp.com. I've got a, this lovely community starting at patreon.com forward slash Jennifer Knapp, if you're into that kind of thing. I've got a couple of collaborative projects that I'm working on. And of course, I'm doing advocacy inside of the faith communities and doing that as well. But all of the specifics, if there's any news to see, you will find it out at the JenniferKnapp.com. Awesome. So I'll link to that in show notes as well as to your book. So I really appreciate your time today. I, I think this has been a great conversation and Whenever you launch this new project that you're referring to, I'd love to have you back on and talk about that if you'd want to. Sure. Secret projects. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. All right. Cheers. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I wanted to take this moment to tell you about a program I am in that helps women navigate the journey of realizing their lesbians while in relationships with men. It's a 12-week support program called Coming Out on the Other Side. It is hosted by one of my early podcast guests, Emily Better. Some of the topics include the three stages of coming out later in life, understanding why you didn't figure this out sooner, and why this is so hard. You will go from being scared, confused, lacking confidence, hiding your true self, and feeling alone, guilty, and misunderstood, to overcoming fears, understanding and embracing who you are, being confident in yourself and your decisions, and ultimately being able to come out and live as your authentic self if and when you're ready. Learn more by going to thelatelifelesbian.com.